Well, praise the Lord. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 8. The teachings that Jesus just gave from the Mount, we know as the Sermon on the Mount, they were, they were designed to show us our need for a Savior. I mean, if you think about it, if anybody would ever try to keep those commands, huh, I mean, not just keep the commands physically, but keep every spiritual aspect of those commands, including your thought patterns, your, you know, who um, in his right mind would volunteer to even attempt to keep those laws if it were a matter of heaven or hell. <laughs> who would, who in their right mind? Those teachings were designed to show us our need for a Savior. You know what? There's no hope in and of ourselves of acquiring salvation. There's no hope. Um, it, would be a, it would be a tower of Babel. We, we, we need the Messiah. Okay? Now, the good news is that gospel means good news, and Matthew means what? Anybody remember? Good news of... You got it in your notes? The gift of God. The good news of the gift of God. And so, the gift of God, God sent His only Son to be the salvation of the world. He actually became sin for us. So that in Him, that is by putting our faith in Him, we could become the righteousness of God. That's an amazing verse found in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Amazing. Amazing that God would do that. Now, the rabbis, that is the teachers of the law, they looked at a leper as one that was judged of God one that was judged of God. Um, leprosy is, is, is a kind of a model in the scriptures. It's kind of a model of sin. And what it does is the same thing that sin does in our life spiritually, leprosy would do in your life physically. It would actually just eat you away. You would be a dead, dead man walking. And um, so as we keep in mind this, the terms that Jesus laid out in the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and we, and we think about how could we ever attain to the height of this, this ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to turn with me just for a second to John chapter 15. We're coming right back, so put something in there. Put something in there. John chapter 15 and verse 5. This is what Jesus said. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's where we are trying to attain our righteousness, trying to attain uh, that perfection that God demands. Apart from Christ, we're, that's it. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the answer is, you know, how could we ever attain to the height of of the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount? The answer is you can't. You, you can't. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. So here we have this. Jesus coming down from the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 8, it opens up with these words. It says, When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Now, Jesus comes down and immediately he comes in contact with these great crowds of people. There were those called his followers, his disciples, and that, by the way, that's who the Sermon on the Mount is for. If you're not a disciple of Christ and you're trying to uh, keep these, this Sermon on the Mount, you're in serious trouble. But following Jesus, okay, I want you to understand something. These people, they're following Jesus. And last week we talked a little bit about discipleship, but one of the definitions of disciple was a follower. But I got to add this, to follow after Jesus does not, I repeat, does not in and of itself make somebody a disciple. Okay? Because there were a lot of people chasing after Jesus. But he knew their hearts. He looked at some of them and he said, you're following me because, well, for example, I, I, I filled your belly. 
you know, when he fed the 5,000, he said, you're following me because your stomachs are full. Or you're following me because you saw you know, signs and wonders. But that doesn't necessarily make one a disciple. Remember, Jesus promised his disciples blessing as he went through, you know, blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they. But they were promised blessing by recognizing their spiritual bankruptcy. And I think that's what brings us here tonight. That's why we study the scriptures, because we know, that's why we seek Jesus, because we know that without him, you know, we can do nothing. In him, we're going to bear fruit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So they recognize their, their spiritual bankruptcy. They cry out for the Messiah. That is the portrait of a disciple. Um, turn to John chapter 14 once. And then we're going to get rolling. John chapter 14. I want to start with verse 15. And I want to read through verse 31. The reason I'm doing this is because I I want you to be sure that you understand what a disciple is and how Jesus teaches, fills them with his spirit, calls them to follow, calls them to obey. Listen to what he says. In verse 15... John chapter 14, he says this, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Notice that the counselor, or the Holy Spirit that he's talking about giving to his disciples, is called the Spirit of truth. Okay, The world cannot accept him. And that's very important that you understand that. The world can't accept the things of the Spirit of God. We saw that last week and, and again uh, Sunday as we're studying in Ezekiel. Uh, we went into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and we saw that the, it's, it's the God gives His Spirit to those that put their faith in Jesus and He gives them their, His Spirit so that they can understand spiritual things, godly things. And the world can't receive it. It says, The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him. For he lives with you and will be in you. See, up until this point, Pentecost had not taken place. That happens in the book of Acts. But he says he'll, he'll be with you and he will be in you. And notice, every time you, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit, he refers to it as a, a him. A him. The Holy Spirit is, is a person of the Godhead. It's a, it's, he's a person. It's not some kind of magical mystery tour. You know, it's not some kind of uh, uh, Star Wars force, you know, that overtakes you or whatever. It's the person of the Holy Spirit in the Godhead. He says, you lift you. Well, he, he, he lives with you and will be in you. And then he says in verse 18, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So now we get a clue that not only is the Spirit of God a he, a personal Spirit, and he wants to dwell in you, but, the, but Jesus says, I will come to you. Now, that's, that's pretty interesting. We know that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. Jesus is saying here, I, I want to live in you. That's awesome. Listen to where this goes. He says, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Wow. That's intense. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved of my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Now, wait a minute. You're saying, Will, Will, just take a break here. One minute you're saying we can't keep these laws, and then in the next minute you're saying, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey these laws. You'll obey my commands. What's the deal? The deal is this. We, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are no longer keeping these laws in order that we can earn our salvation or earn our way to heaven. Jesus already paid that price. Now we're keeping these laws and these regulations and every word of Jesus, and we're following him because we love him. Not because we have to. You know, I've never been so free in all my life, and and yet I have never been so refined by the Holy Spirit in all my life because I understand that to, to disobey the commands of Jesus is to break his heart. 
It's not to break the law anymore. It's I break his heart. And so here he's saying to his disciples, whoever has my commands and obeys them is the one who loves me. Now it's easy for somebody to say I'm a Christian. Anybody can say I'm a Christian. How many times have you run into somebody even on the street and they say, oh, you're a Christian? Me too. Well, how do you know? Well, I got a fish on my bumper, you know. I got a Jesus bumper sticker. You know, can't you see I like Jesus on my sweatshirt? You know, that doesn't make you a Christian. You know, any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. He says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one that loves me. He who loves me will be loved to my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And I'm just going, wow, praise the Lord. Then he says, verse 22 says, Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, How'd you like to be known as Judas, not Judas Iscariot? <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> you know, you can't even call him anybody Judas. Nobody names their kid Judas anymore. You know, but back then, poor guy. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, it's kind of his last name, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Now, the reason why I took you here is because I want you to see the difference between somebody who is a follower in terms of being a disciple of Jesus and somebody who's just following the crowd. Okay, listen. Jesus answers the question. It says, verse 23, he replied, If anyone loves me. How many is any? Anyone. Anyone. That's it. It's all inclusive, isn't it? If, 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 if anyone loves me, that is key. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Now think about this. How many times have I heard people say, well, you know, I mean, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Oh, really? You don't go to church? Okay. Um, Tell me, you know, are you involved in a Bible study? Well, no, you know, I'm not. I'm not really in. I'm not really into the, the Bible, you know, but I'm a Christian. Wait a minute. How can you obey Jesus' words if you don't know them? This is now we're getting to some pretty critical turf here. These words you hear, they're not my own. They belong to my Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said to you. Now let me ask you a question. How could the Holy Spirit remind us of something that we never knew in the first place? Hmm? Think about it. People don't want to study God's Word. They don't want to be in God's Word, but they want the Holy Spirit to reveal things to them. Well, you think it's just osmosis? That the Holy Spirit is, is just going to, you know... And so many believers today, and I'm not saying they don't love the Lord, and I'm not saying they're not sincere, but you're going to see as we go through Matthew's Gospel the importance of listening to what Jesus says and obeying what he says. He says, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. That's an indication that you have to listen to what Jesus says. Okay? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Now, think about this. Jesus says, I'm giving you peace, but not like the world gives. What, what kind of peace does the world give? Well, the world gives a peace and then can take it back again. You know, it's kind of like this, well, not, now I have it, now I lost it, now I have it, now I lost it. The world's kind of peace is, is when there isn't any tribulation, when there isn't any trials, when there, is, when there aren't any frustrations, when circumstances, everything is, well, how, how often does that happen? <laughs> how many days have you gone through in your life where it was just a, absolutely perfect, you know, no waves, no, no, no nothing? That's the world's kind of peace. Jesus isn't promising that kind of peace. He's promising the kind of peace that you will have in the storms. In the storms of life, you'll have peace. Wow, that's cool. Then he says in verse 28, You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. 
he has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Okay, now, Jesus told this to his disciples and the difference between those that are just following him for what they can get and those that are following him out of love is they listen to Jesus' words, they obey the commands. Now, the teachers of the law, the rabbis, they're looking at lepers and leprosy and they're saying, this is a, this is a model of, of, this is a, a, one that's judged of God. Obviously, this guy has sin or he wouldn't have leprosy. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 8, and verse 2. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Oh, man. Now, this is a great example of who Jesus was speaking of in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a great example because remember what he said? He said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Here's somebody who knows he's out of resources. In the first place, he wasn't even supposed to be in a crowd because when you had leprosy, they confined you. You were in a colony of lepers, and if anybody got close to you, you were supposed to shout out, unclean, unclean. In fact, the bottom half of your face was supposed to be covered and all these things. He comes to Jesus, and he calls him Lord. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand, and he touched the man. Now, that's, that's really wild because to touch somebody who has leprosy is to get leprosy. You understand? I mean, you just didn't go into, up to somebody who had leprosy and touch him. Jesus touches him, touches the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Now, as I look at this, I'm going, wait a minute now. Jesus is able to heal the leper with just a touch. Hmm. Just a touch. So I'm saying, if, if I'm listening to this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and I'm one of these people sitting there, I'm coming down from this mountain, and I'm going, there's no way. There's no way I can't. I can't. How am I ever going to? keep all these laws. I can't, you know, my thoughts already, already my thoughts are wandering and already I'm in sin. And I see this happen? Going, wait a minute, Jesus is proving to these people not only do they need a Messiah, but he's proving to them that he is it. He is the one sent from above. Listen to what happens. Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Okay, now, two things happen here. One, don't, don't go making a big deal about this, that you were healed from leprosy. But go to the priests and show them what happened and make an offering of thanksgiving for your cleansing and your healing. This man, as a leper, was an outcast. He was set aside. He wasn't allowed to come into fellowship with anybody, and the priests were the ones that made that determination. So he had to go to the priest, show himself to them. The priest would see that he was clean, make that pronouncement, and he would be allowed back in, into the fellowship. But the other cool thing is, remember Jesus said, I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill it. He's actually going back to the law of Moses and saying, go ahead. Go back to the priest and, and offer, the, offer the offering. Offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Well, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, now, if you have those maps from last week, um, you'll see that Capernaum is up on the northern, uh, kind of the northwest end of the Sea of Galilee. And that kind of became Jesus' second home. You'll see that as we go through this portion of Scripture tonight, that he, he, they even refer to it as his home. Well, his home was Nazareth, but he left there, and he's in the Galilee region now. 
And it says, when he came, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Now understand, a centurion is a Roman soldier. He's part of the Roman military, which would make him a Gentile, right? Listen to this. A Roman centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, now that's the second time in Matthew's gospel we see that word. First one was by the leper. Second one's by this Roman centurion, this Gentile. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. And Jesus said, well, I'll go heal him. <laughs> How cool is that? Here's this Gentile. Rome so Jesus says, well, I'll go heal him. But look at what he says, verse 8. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. Jesus was astonished. And he said to those following him, think about this, he's astonished. What's he so astonished about? He's astonished at the faith of a Gentile. He's astonished at the faith of a Gentile. I want to show you something. Turn over to Mark chapter 6. It's the next gospel there, Matthew, Mark. Mark chapter 6, and look at verse 6. There was something else that astonished Jesus. This is what really blows me away. There's, there's two things that astonish Jesus. One is the faith of the Gentile. Look at verse 6 in Mark 6. It says, And he was amazed at their lack of faith. He's talking about, he, he's talking about his hometown. He's talking about a lack of faith of the Jews. There's two things that astonish Jesus. The lack of faith of the Jews and the incredible faith of the Gentile. <laughs> Does that surprise you? Back in Matthew 8, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. And he said to those following him, now listen carefully, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel. Now I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't call this Palestine. Okay, make a little note of that. He doesn't call it Palestine. He calls it Israel. It's always called Israel in the Bible. I've not found anyone in all Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does he mean by that? Many will come from the east and the west. This is a fascinating thing to me, and I want you to try this sometime. Take a map of the world and ask yourself this question. You picture this map of the world. Ask yourself this question. Why does everyone in the world refer to the United States and Canada and Central America, South America? Why did they refer to those places as the West? And why did they refer to China and Asia. Why did they refer to that as the East? Have you ever thought about that? That's an interesting thing to me because it, you don't have to be a believer to think that way. They call the United States the West. They call China the East. Why? Who, who made that up? Where did that come from? Well, you know what's in between them? Israel. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that Israel is at the center of everything? This tiny little nation that you can barely, if you look at a world map, you can barely pick it out unless you get right up to it and get a little magnifying glass and search it out. But Jesus says here, he says, I, I, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west. He, what he's saying here is that these unexpected guests from among the Gentiles, Jesus is amazed at the insight and the faith of this Roman soldier. And it puts the children of Israel to shame. But listen to what he says. He says, they'll come from the east and the west and they'll take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Wow. But, verse 12, and this is an indictment on the Jewish people, on, on Israel, on the nation. 
But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's he saying? Well, for one thing, race doesn't keep you out of the kingdom. Okay, Race will not keep you out of the kingdom. But what's the other thing he's saying? Race doesn't guarantee you a place in the kingdom either. See, a lot of these people thought because they're children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're automatically in like Flynn, you know. I mean, here we are. Hey, we're the circumcised. Well, guess what I'm hearing among the church today? And I've heard this at funerals. I've heard guys preach this. So-and-so, who's laying here in the box, is in heaven right now because he was baptized as an infant. Well, be careful. Be very careful. The Scriptures don't teach that. The Scriptures teach that if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll enter into the kingdom. If you've made him your Lord and Savior, if you've recognized that you're a sinner and you call out to him for salvation and accepted him as Lord. But in the same way that the Jews were saying, hey, we're circumcised, we're, we got it made. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're our, our father, you know. Church does that today. Hey, we're in because we went through this ritual or that ritual. Be very careful. But look what happens. Don't, don't miss the miracle here. Just like, you know, don't miss the miracle of touching that leper. and That was miraculous. That, that wasn't just, that wasn't a man-made thing. That was a God thing. Watch this. Verse 13. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go. It will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. This servant put his faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, this centurion put his faith in Jesus Christ for the healing of his servant. For the answering of this prayer. Here's this servant, miles away. He's miles away, and he's healed. That's a God thing. That's a God thing. That is incredible to me. You know what? And, and to those that are, are saying, well, you know miracles. I mean, come on. Makes a nice legend. You know, makes a nice myth. If you took the miracles out of the Bible, you took the miraculous and the supernatural out of the Bible, you wouldn't have much of a Bible. Be pretty thin. Jesus heals him from miles away. From miles away. Now, still at Capernaum, when Jesus came to Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother in law. Well, you know what that tells me? If Peter's got a mother in law, he must have had a wife. Okay? That was a revelation to me because I grew up Catholic. I thought Peter was the first pope. And, and if, Peter, if Peter had a mother-in-law, he must have had a wife. Well, his mother-in-law is lying in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. Whoa! Jesus walks in. Here's Peter's mother-in-law, sick with a fever. He just touches her hand. The fever leaves her. What does she do? I love this. Because this is an indication of somebody who is grateful unto the Lord. She becomes a servant. She enters into service of the Lord. As soon as the fever left her, she got up and she began to wait on him. And you know what? That's what God calls us to. In fact, he says, the greatest among you is a servant of all. Has the Lord healed you? Has he set you free? I suggest you find some way to serve him. Just serve him. Just out of love, just serve him. It says, verse 16, when evening came, Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. Now, that's not a figment of somebody's imagination. Somebody who is demon-possessed. That's not a figment of somebody's imagination. That's not just mental illness. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word. Just a word. That's the power of God. That's the power of God. And he healed all the sick. How many is all? He healed them all. Every, all of them. Everyone that came to him, he healed them. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Now, we said we were going to come to this phrase. You're going to see it over and over in Matthew's Gospel. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah said, He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. That's taken from Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah chapter, the end of chapter 52 and all of chapter 53 is a messianic 
chapter. It's all about the Messiah. And Matthew, by the Holy Spirit here, is attributing Isaiah's prophecies to Jesus. He's saying Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies. In other words, what Matthew is saying is, we're looking at the Messiah here, you guys. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God in the flesh. And when Jesus saw the crowd around him, I suppose by now, I mean, think of this stuff. Think of this stuff happening. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then a teacher of the law came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, that's pretty cool. But this guy um, was a teacher of the law, recognized Jesus and said, I want to follow you wherever you go. But there's something up. Because Jesus says in verse 20, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, it's an indication that Jesus, looking at this man, knew something. He knew something about this man that he hadn't counted the cost. You know, I can imagine when you see Jesus healing people, touching a leper and the leprosy going away. You know, just telling a Roman centurion, look, go home, and when you get home, you'll find your servant as well. So he's healed. Peter's mother-in-law healed. Demons cast out of people. And everybody that was brought to Jesus that had some kind of sickness or some kind of illness, whether it was physical or spiritual or whatever it was, Jesus made him whole. And this guy goes, I'll follow you. I'll follow you, Lord. Well, you know what? Those kind of times can look really glamorous. They can be really glamorous. But Jesus says, what about where the rubber meets the road? What about when times get hard? You still going to follow me? Count the cost. Don't just jump in here. I just started reading uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book again for about the third or fourth time, The Cost of Discipleship. It's a, it's a hard book to get through, but it's, I mean, it's intense. And, and I'll tell you what, foxes do have holes and birds do have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus came and he was on a mission, and his mission was this. Father, whatever you say, what your will, not my will, even when it came to the cross, even when it came to the scourging and the crucifixion. And then another disciple, verse 21, another disciple says to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, this is, this, at first glance, I mean, you, you look at this, the cost of following Jesus, I mean, you look at this, and you've got to say to yourself, this is a harsh answer that Jesus gives. This is an incredibly harsh answer. Listen to what he says. But Jesus told him, follow me. And let the dead bury their own dead. Well, I'll tell you what. There's two things that, that people have interpreted this. One is that the guy's, the guy's father died and he had to go to the funeral. Another one is that his father wasn't dead yet, but he was going to go take care of his father until his father died and then he would follow Jesus. Okay? But, I'll, you know, Paul just asked, well, what does that mean? Uh, I want you to key in on one word in verse 21. Okay, go back to verse 21. Read that with me again. It says, another disciple, that is another follower, another one that wanted, another one of Jesus' students said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. I want you to key in on one word, okay, with me? First, the word first, all right? And when you think about that word first, now go with me to Luke chapter 14. I want to show you something. Luke chapter 14. I want to read about 10 verses here from verse 25 to 35. Luke 14. This is um, Luke's uh, talking. Jesus gives a teaching here on the cost of being a disciple. Listen carefully. It says in verse 25 of Luke 14, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brother and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is that harsh? Jesus says, I won't play second fiddle to anyone. If your family means more to me, hey, go to your family. If you're, if, you know... Jesus must be first. But let me say this about that before I go on. 
Let me say this. If you put Jesus first in your life, you will treat every one of these other people better. I guarantee it. Jesus is not saying this in a sense of, you know, we need to hate them. Listen carefully. He says, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You know what he's talking about here? Absolute surrender. Absolute surrender. There is no other way. He goes on to say, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying, this fellow began to build and he was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, now that's, that's one. That's one. Before we go back to Matthew's Gospel, though, I want to take you one more place. And I want to keep in mind that one word from Matthew Chapter uh, 8 and verse 21, where that disciple said to him, Lord, first, first, let me go bury my father and turn with me to the book of the Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. This is, this will surprise you, I think. This is a very interesting thing. As Jesus, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, these are letters to the churches. And in chapter 2, he writes to the church in Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Revelation. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, and notice if, if you're reading a, a, a red-letter edition, these words are in red. This is Jesus. And these letters are personal letters to the churches. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Okay, now you know that the seven stars are the, the, the seven messengers of the, of, of the seven churches. Okay, there's the, the angels, some translations say. So the whole, the, in, in, it's a reference to himself. He's identifying himself in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands or the seven churches. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. Now these are all good things. He's commending this church. He says, you can't tolerate wicked men. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Look at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Your first love. Your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstands, your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he says again, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, the first love, your first love. If Jesus isn't your first love, he isn't your love. He isn't your love. If there's anything between you and Jesus, if there's anything between Jesus and I, I have to let it go. I have to let it go. And that's why Jesus said, does that make it a little more clear that when Jesus says to this guy, you know, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead? That's a harsh thing. Back in Matthew 8, we see not only does Jesus have power over demonic beings, not only does he have power over illnesses and diseases, but here we see he has power over the elements. And I guess you would expect that from God in the flesh, wouldn't you? Listen to this. Then he got into a boat, and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. Now, <laughs> there's something about this, and you and I need to understand this because it comes off as indifference. At first sight, you just, you just go, well, well, Jesus. I mean, even the disciples, you read this in the other Gospels, and you know they're going, Lord, don't you care? <laughs> We're going to drown. 
mean, they didn't say it like that. They were panicking, absolute panic. But when you are in absolute peace, that can't be mistaken for just being careless or, or you know. It's amazing to me that Jesus is just asleep in the boat and the storm comes up. And, and you guys will see this when we get over to Israel in, in May. And in particular, when you get into the Galilee region and you go down by that lake in the evening, you take a walk. Storms can come up in like three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, just, just like that. And it's nasty without warning. So when I read this, it's like, this is real. This happened a couple times when we were out walking. Storm come up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping, and the disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. <coughs> now, I couldn't help but thinking of the Sermon on the Mount when I heard this. Lord, save us. You know what? They know that they're out of resources. Once again, spiritual bankruptcy. Lord, if you don't do something, we are going to drown. We're going to drown. He replied, O oh, you of little faith, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. Now, that's a comfort to me because Jesus not only comforts and, and, and calms physical storms like this. I mean, just the, 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 the elements of nature. He, he calms them down because he's the creator of these elements. So they have to obey him. But the cool thing to me is that he does the same thing in my life. When those storms come up out of, out of a blue sky, you know, when things are all just clear sailing and out of a blue sky, all of a sudden you're dealing with all this torment and torrents and wind and rain. And Jesus promised that, remember? Back in Matthew 7, he said, he promised it to the righteous and the unrighteous. He promised it to the one who was building on the rock and the one who was building on the sand. The rains will come down. The, the water will rise up. The wind will blow and beat against that house. But one of the houses was going to stand. One of them was going to fall. And Jesus says, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. Now, the cool thing to me is that he rebukes the wind and the rain, and he says to his disciples, oh, you have little faith. He doesn't rebuke the disciples and say to the wind, what a gentle teacher. He rebukes the wind and the waves, and he says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? I need that. I needed to hear this. I needed to hear this tonight. And look at verse 27. It says, the men were amazed. And they asked, what kind of man is this? And even the winds and the, and the, and the waves obey him. Imagine that. And when he arrived on the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, now, you remember the Gads, the, the Gadites, the... Um, the tribe of Gad, and we talked about this uh, in our, our study in Mark's Gospel too, where, where uh, they, when they were dividing up the land and uh, the Gadites wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan. Well, this is where they are. They're actually on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And this was the territory that the tribe of Gad had. So the, these Gadarenes... And you're like, whatever happened to the Gadareans? Well, unfortunately, the Gadareans got into pig farming. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not good if you know anything about uh, the pig business. They weren't supposed to be raising pigs, let's put it that way. Pig, uh, pork is not kosher, <laughs> Okay. They arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadareans. Two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Um, this is also mentioned in Mark's Gospel. It's also mentioned in Luke's Gospel. And this question, uh, it, let me just ask you, have you ever had somebody say to you that the Bible is, is unreliable due to you know, contradictions in the text? There's all kinds of contradictions in the Bible. Well, this is one they point to because in uh, Matthew's gospel here, it says there were two demon-possessed men. In Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, it says there, he, they just identify one. Now, I look at this and, and, and I'm going, well, you know, it doesn't really rattle my faith because I know Jesus and I know the scriptures and, 
generally, when, when, I, when I get this kind of opposition from people, it's generally from people who don't read the Bible and they don't study the Bible. They're looking for a reason not to believe it. Okay, So in, in those cases, um, I don't think there's much that you're going to do to change their minds. But I look at this and I go, number one, it's likely that, that one of these individuals was, was more, more prominent and more memorable, probably because of his, his uh, uh, he was the fiercer of the two and, uh, and the one who spoke with Jesus. And so Mark recognizes him and Luke recognizes him, but Matthew somehow, you know, so I look at this and I go, all right, here we are, southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Mark and Luke say one. Apparently, barring a copyist error, I mean, that, that can always end in there too, but barring a copyist error, Matthew had some inside scoop here, and he says there were two of them. There were two demon-possessed men. So I'm looking at this, and I'm going, well, uh, in Mark and Luke's account, they, they, they don't exclude the fact that there could have been a second one. They just talk about one of them. Um, number two, possibly a copyist error. Number three, and, and this one just came to me today. I was just thinking about this today. Perhaps the, loud, the, 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 the Lord allowed this in order that the unbeliever would be convinced in his unbelief. That just hit me today. You know, because the Lord will do that. If you want to go somewhere in your mind and in your heart and you want to disbelieve something, the Lord will honor that. God will honor that. In fact, I think there's two kinds of people in the world. There's one person who says, Lord... Your will be done. And there's the other person to whom the Lord says, okay, your will be done. You know, so I look at this and hey, maybe the Lord just allowed this in order that the unbeliever would be convinced in his unbelief. I don't know. I really don't know. But Matthew says there was two. doesn't shake my faith. I don't know about you guys, but he says there were two, and it came from the tombs. These guys were living in the tombs. The other gospel says that they were he was cutting himself with sharp stones and crying out loud. I don't know if you've ever heard uh, Bob Bennett's song, Man of the Tombs. If you haven't, you need to. It's a powerful, powerful song. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? Now, that's, a, that's another indication that uh, I thought perhaps this would be involved in a copyist error because, well, let, me, let me just tell you, a couple weeks ago, we were in Luke's Gospel downstairs in uh, one of Jerry Mansavage's studies. And, uh, and we came across a passage where Jesus sent out uh, the, the 72, it said, in Luke's Gospel. But in one of the other Gospels, it said he sent out the 70. And so I'm thinking, well, how come somebody wrote down 72 and somebody wrote down 70? And when I looked into it and I started looking at it, I found out that he sent out the 70 in twos. Okay, so it would be real simple for a copyist error to be instead of he sent out the 70 in twos, he sent out the 72. And so I'm looking at this and where the, where the demons, where the demon says, what do you want with us? If you remember in Mark and Luke's gospel where the demon identifies himself, he says, our, our name is Legion for we are many. You know, so who knows? But he says, what, you know, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Now, I don't think the demons know when the appointed time is. But I do think that they know that there's a time when they will be defeated. I think they know that their days are numbered. Okay, And, um, and I don't know. I, I don't... Uh, the extent of my dialogue with the enemy these days is, your days are numbered. You know, then I turn to the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, rebuke them. You know, I don't think we need to dialogue. I think that's a huge mistake that people make dialoguing. In. Look where it got Eve. Right? Dialogue with the enemy. Just look at Genesis chapter 3. See where that went. You know, you just don't dialogue with the enemy. So, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Jesus said to them, go. 
So they came out and they went into the pigs and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. You know, even a pig would rather die than be a vessel of a demonic spirit. So that's got to give you some kind of clue. How much less should a human? But after this incident, says in verse 33, those tending the pigs ran off. They went into the town. They reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Oh, man, what is up with that? Not glad that this guy is set free. Not glad that they don't have to avoid that area anymore. I can't go through there because these demon-possessed guys will rip them to shreds. Go back to the beginning of that story. It says that these men coming from the tombs, they were so violent that no one could pass that way. They're not glad that these guys are healed and set free from these demonic. They just want Jesus out of there. Just leave our region. Go somewhere else. It blew me away. I'll tell you why, at least why I think this happened. Jesus hit them right in the wallet. These guys were raising pigs. They're all dead. All the pigs are dead. They went and drowned. Whatever you do, don't upset our economy, Jesus. Get out of here. Don't upset our economy. Jesus stepped into the boat and crossed over, and he came to his own town. See, before I was mentioning that Capernaum uh, really kind of became his home base there um, after he left Nazareth, came to the Galilee region. He came to his own town, and that scripture verse is why when you and I get to Capernaum, you'll see a little sign up there as you come into Jesus' hometown. It says on the sign. It's kind of cool. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on his mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, now notice it doesn't specifically exclude the paralytic's faith, but he would have never been able to get there if it weren't for these other guys. In fact, if you read about this in Mark's Gospel, you see that these four guys, they, uh, they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd, so they cut a, a hole in the, in the roof tiles and they, and they let him down on a mat, on a, on a pallet, and they got him in front of Jesus. And Jesus, seeing the faith of these guys just trying to get their friend before him, heals the man. Now picture this. Jesus is in the, the synagogue and it's packed out, right? And he's teaching and all of a sudden the stuff's like falling. Like what? What? You know, looks up in the ceiling. Somebody's cutting a hole in the roof. What is up here? And all of a sudden a guy comes down through the, you know, how cool. Jesus commends them for their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, at this... Some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, and, and, and they did really say to themselves, they weren't saying this out loud, they were thinking this. Some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this, this fellow is blaspheming, blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, that's how I know that these guys didn't just say it out loud. Jesus knew what they were thinking. How does somebody know what you're thinking? Well, that's not hard for God, because God can look right through a man. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what I'm going to say next. He knew that I was just going to say that and that. See what I mean? He knew their thoughts. <laughs> he knew their thoughts. And Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, why, why did Jesus go there? Because right away, they're going back to the law, and they're saying, in their own hearts and in their own minds, they're going, wait a minute, only God can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. Think about this. Only God can forgive sin, you guys. Wouldn't you think that they'd be going, bingo. Only God can forgive sin. Watch this. He goes, but what's easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take your mat and go home. Wow. Now, if the man wouldn't have gotten up, if he would have laid there on his mat and not gotten up, then they would have known, well, see, only God can forgive sin. 
But watch what happens. Verse 7 says, And the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. Now, when I look at this, and I go, you know, Jesus told us that we should let our light so shine before men so that they would see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. That's what they were doing. I mean, they were right in glorifying their Father in heaven, but they missed one thing. <laughs> They're looking at God manifest in the flesh. They just don't know it yet. So Jesus is just so patient. And just i got to tell you about a, last year at boot camp. We had um, the leadership did a skit for the kids, and uh, they brought one of, the, one of the leaders in on a mat, Jesus was, the skit went like this. Jesus was up front and he was teaching and they brought this guy in on a mat and, and they laid him down in front of Jesus. And, and Jesus, you know, saw their faith that this guy wanted to be healed. So he went and he told this guy to get up, take up his mat and follow and, and, and sin no more. You know, your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat and go home. So Jesus says this to, to the, in this skit. He said, the guy on the floor... And the guy looked up at him from the floor. He didn't move a muscle. He got up and he said, Can't you see I'm a paralytic? I can't get up and take up my mat and walk. And he stood and he argued with Jesus and argued and argued. Why are you poking fun of me? I can't get up and take up my mat. And while he, while he argued, the four guys came back in and they picked up the mat and they carried the guy out while he was screaming at Jesus. You know. And, and then Landon one of the leaders got up and said to the kids, you know what, some of you guys are going to leave this camp the same way you came in here because you refuse to listen to Jesus. You refuse to obey. And it wasn't just a drama. I mean, you could really sense Jesus said to, he honored these guys' faith of cutting the ceiling tile and lowering this guy down. And they said, you know what, Jesus, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that was an indication that sin can be a part of illness. It's not all the time, but in this case, he he told this man he forgave his sin and had him get up and and he healed him. Now, this is kind of a humble a humble calling here. Uh, Matthew is writing of his own call, and I think this is kind of, kind of an in, insight to the person of Matthew too, as he writes verse nine. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? A tax collector... um, was kind of the low of the low of the low. Because you know how they made their living? They made their living by taxing a little more. That's how they made their living. So they would get the taxes for the government, but then they would tax a little bit more, and that's how they made their income. And that's why people hated them, and that's why people looked at them as cheaters and thieves and liars. And so they they just kind of lumped the uh, publicans and, and, and that that would be uh, the the King James for tax collector and the and the sinners kind of all into one thing and look at look at what your your teacher he eats with tax collectors and sinners is that lawful is that even lawful to do that on hearing this Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick go and learn what this means I desire mercy not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Wow. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, an assignment, I guess, if you want to call it that. If you want to study some, some examples of mercy, because we don't have time to go there right now. But I want you to look at Luke chapter 15 sometime. Okay, This reference that Jesus makes here is actually from Hosea 6.6. 6. But uh, that, that word mercy in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is hesed. That's where uh, our youth group got the name, hesed. It's a mercy. It's a, it's a, a loyal love. And um, it's a, the right conduct towards your fellow man or, or loyalty to God or both. 
And Jesus is saying, you know what? You need to check out mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And as we get into this, you'll, you'll, you'll see what I mean by that. For I have come to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. He says, I've come to call, not to call the righteous, but sinners. And if you're reading a King James tonight, it says to call sinners to repentance. Um, it's interesting to me that Jesus, in that teaching up on the Sermon on the Mount, talked about being poor in spirit, and the reference was to understand that you don't have what it takes. <laughs> you don't have what it takes to be righteous. We need a righteousness that is from God, not our own righteousness, not self-righteousness. And the scribes and the Pharisees just didn't get it. Look at this, verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So there were some that were still following John, even though John was trying to tell them, Look, you know, there's one that comes after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals and and he baptizes with fire. I baptize with water. He baptizes with... But there were some of these disciples and they came and they asked them, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. Hmm. Now he ties it together with this. Listen carefully. Verse 16. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment for the patch will pull away in the garment pull away from the garment making the tear worse neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins for if they do the skins will burst the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined no they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved now Jesus is trying to teach these guys something what, what what's this all about well the old worn-out religion, the old worn-out religion, Judaism, will not accept this new piece of cloth. You can't take an unshrunk cloth and sew it to an old garment because the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. You see, something new is going on here, and it can't be put into the traditional setting. This was blowing their minds. <coughs> the new garment that Jesus was talking about. Turn with me to John chapter 1, just for one second. And we'll come right back here. But John chapter 1 and verse 17. I want to show you what the new garment is, really, that Jesus is talking about here. John chapter 1 and verse 17 it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You understand? The law, you, you, you can't take these two covenants and mix them. There's a, there's a dispensation of grace that you and I are living under that Jesus came to fulfill that law. He came and fulfilled every law because he knew we couldn't. He didn't come to do away with the law. Don't mistake that. But it says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says to these guys, you know, guys, you can't pour new wine into old wineskins. And that's why the scribes and the Pharisees just couldn't get it. They couldn't handle it. This was blowing their minds. Wait a minute. We keep the law. We keep the law. We keep the law. And Jesus says, yeah, but the law and 50 cents will get you a cup of coffee somewhere. And it ain't going to get you into the kingdom. You need to understand why Jesus came. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to leave it there for tonight. We'll, we'll take up with verse 18 in, in uh, Matthew chapter 9 um, when we come back next week. But don't forget that study in Luke 15. Check that out because Jesus gives some examples of mercy. And I think it's critical for us to see that, you know what, it's not about sacrifice. It's not about keeping some set of rituals or some set of laws. It's about the condition of our heart. And that's why what we just went through last week, that Sermon on the Mount, that's why that's so critical. It's not just about keeping some physical set of laws. It's about your heart and your mind. Where's your heart and your mind? So let's pray as we close this study tonight and just, just ask the Lord to continue to cleanse us, 
Wash us by His Spirit and His Word. And, and uh, Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this Bible study tonight. I, I praise You, Lord, for revealing Yourself to us. The only way that we could know anything about You, the, no, the only way that we could have a relationship with You, Lord, is for You to come down to our level and, and make Yourself known to us. And I thank You so much for doing that. And God, I thank you that uh, in John 14, Jesus told us that he wouldn't leave us orphans. It's so good to be able to open our prayers and, and say, Father, our Father who art in heaven. Lord, it's so good to be able to come into your, your presence and just make our requests known to you with thanksgiving, knowing that uh, as we bring our petitions to you, Lord, and and just lay them before you, and we love you, that you'll continue to, to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And we ask that you do that tonight. Lord, as we leave this place, just have your way in us and through us. And thank you so much, Father, for the privilege of studying your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.